Romans chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Romans 15, verse 8. This has been a lengthy letter, the longest and most robust of Paul's ministry writing. And I don't know about you, but in some ways, as I'm coming to the close of it, I want to not say turn to Romans 15. I want to say let's turn to Romans 1.5. It has been a blessing to consider these doctrines, these truths, and then more than that, to see how they play into our lives, to think about what is it like to receive mercy and then live with people well. Nonetheless, we are coming to the close in some ways, and what we're about to read is a, a farewell of sorts. Paul is reflecting on what he's seen happening. He's asking for their unity, the unthinkable to take place, that the dividing wall of hostility between Jewish people who were ethnically Israel and Gentiles, everybody else, that they would be united together in Christ in a way that would be powerful. That's what he wants to have happen. It's interesting to me how much time he takes at the end of Romans to say goodbye. This end of Romans 15, he's going to take time to reflect on what he's done. Has it been worth it? How is it to be measured? And then 16 is nearly entirely concerned with the people that he loves and wants to know his love. This is a well-known, popular farewell of being a part of Scripture after all. And I think of farewells. You know, one of the most famous ever is George Washington's refusal to run for president again, his farewell address. Articulate, lengthy, pointed, humble. If you don't remember the farewell, it might be good to go back at it or dig deep in your seventh grade history brain. So on one side of known farewells, there's George Washington. Maybe on the other side of how much should I say To say goodbye, there's Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick is famous as a Patriots head coach for having massive wins, say, in the playoffs, then at a press conference. He's stoic, barely says any words, and his response to almost everything is, on to the next. On to the next. Well, what do you think about this battle you just had, and what do you learn from that? What are you taking with you? On to the next. On a scale of those two farewells, Bill Belichick being stoic and just saying barely anything, and... George Washington being articulate and staid and thoughtful, Romans, the end of Romans, is much more like Washington's farewell. This is going to be the most effusive, most reflective Paul that we're going to get in nearly any of his writings. There are moments in 1 and 2 Corinthians where he is this vulnerable, but a lot of times he gets through the letter and it ends abruptly. It's much more on to the next, but not Romans 15 and 16. And so as I... Begin reading. I'm going to read in the eighth verse down through the end of the chapter. We're going to be looking for the heart of Paul, his reflection on what he has been about in his life of ministry. So let's look at this together. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I don't know how many of you were geography champions. I don't know how many of you love a good map. As a random aside of trivia in my life, I once won a geography contest in eighth grade and got to go to state. Yeah, yeah, state. I went to the state geography bee. My dad drove me out. We went to Bismarck, North Dakota. And at the state geography bee, I realized that everyone there was a geography genius, and I happened to be slightly better than the 20 other kids in my rural farm town. <laughs> I think I got every single one of four questions wrong and didn't advance before even beyond the preliminaries. Meanwhile, the kid next to me knew all seven of the tributaries of the Nile River in Egypt. So I don't know how many of you are geography geniuses, but as we reflect on what's happening with Paul, much of what he wrote about here concerns the places that he's been, the places that he wants to get to. And so I thought that before we discuss this farewell address, I want to give you some context to paint in our minds a picture, a map, to become better at the geography of the Bible so that we can understand the moment in Paul's life. Because the moment in Paul's life is that he's reflecting on what he's done, 
There's a transition point happening. He's just told us, I don't have any more room for work in this region. And so he's looking back in some ways at what he's accomplished and what he's done. And then he's also looking forward to a desired new ministry. And this moment of reflection that he's going to have is going to be based on the moment in time, the places that he's been and where he's going. So I thought we'd start this morning with a bit of a context lesson of the geography of where he's going. And then I want to give you a few ideas, some few, a few ways that Paul measures success in his life. And I hope that it's going to be applicable to my own heart and to you to ask questions like this. What makes my life worth it? How do I know if it was a success? Did I win or not? Should I keep going? Am I tired? How do I measure myself? That's what Paul's going to be showing us, I believe. So first geography, and then some lessons on measuring success. So the first thing to say is that as Paul writes this letter, he is likely in Corinth. Corinth is a place in the Greek peninsula. And so if I'm going to create a map in your mind, it's going to be hard for me because in my brain, I'm going to see it on my right, but you're looking at me this way. So I'm going to go over here. Imagine Israel, Jerusalem as a place about here. Isn't this a great map already? Hanging in the air. It's about here, right? So this is Jerusalem and Israel. And just north of there is the place that that Paul is from. It's kind of a hometown, a base for him. And near that place in Antioch where he is from, he has just traveled out a few years before on what is going to become known as his third missionary journey. Now, anytime you have a third of anything, you realize he's been at this for a while. Paul has now been traveling the known world for nearly two decades. And anyone who will listen, he is describing the gospel to them over and over and over again. And here at Corinth now, so he starts over here on his third missionary journey, and he makes his way up across the land of the known world through the churches in Galatia, modern-day Turkey, and around the corner and up onto the peninsula of Greece. And he finally, see, I was doing it. I was drawing the map in my brain, not in yours. Anyway, he goes around, and he's now made it more or less to Corinth. So let's say that's here. And what we need to think about in our minds is that as he writes this letter, Corinth is the extent of his third missionary journey. It's as far away from home as he gets, and he is about halfway between home and Rome. Rome is out there still. It's over there. And he's writing from Corinth with his heartbeat out toward the west. He longs to get further. He's motivated by the gospel inside of him to continue going, but for now, he has to be content with. He starts here. He goes off on his missionary journey. And he's in Corinth. There's a sense in which he's looking out. He's probably not literally looking out. I don't know how much he can see across the countryside. It was said where I grew up in the the Midwest that it was so flat that if you stood on a pop can, you could see across the state. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's exactly where he's at. But imagine his, his mind's eye, he's looking out to the future. But he can't go quite yet. He said he's been hindered a number of times, though he has a desire to go out west. He cannot do this yet. And here's why. Because on this third missionary journey, Paul has two main goals. The first goal, he says very clearly, I determined to do nothing but Christ and him crucified. And so he was always on these missionary journeys, desiring to go to the synagogues, to the places where people met, out into the streets, the highways and the byways, and he declared Christ. That much we know. On this journey though, he has a second task, a second goal. He wants to take an offering because there is Great poverty ravaging the Christians in Jerusalem. There's likely a famine that is set in. 
People are unable to pay their bills. They're unable to get enough food to survive. They are very, very vulnerable and in a dangerous spot of poverty at this point in Jerusalem. And so Paul says, I think I can help. I think I can help. We're one in Christ and I can go around to these places that are not ethnically Jewish, they're not part of Israel, and I can take up an offering. I can gather an offering. So in modern day terms, you can imagine, Paul's planning out his missionary journey. He's writing on ahead. He contacts the key person in Galatia and he says, here's the deal. Find everyone in the church who can make some chili. Okay, get the chili cookers. And when I get there, we're going to have a chili cook-off and we're going to take up a little offering. We'll have a vote for the best one. And then while that's happening, I'm going to give a speech and take up an offering so that we can care for the poor in Jerusalem. Okay, let's do that. Ready, set, go. And then he takes off and he shows up at the churches. He ministers to them for a while. And then he has the bake sale. And he says, here's the thing. There's a famine. They're Jewish Christians. I know it's not exactly like you, but we're one in Christ now. And he says, they actually even owe these material blessings. You should help them. And thus far, he's been successful. He has a bit of money. He has an offering, a way to help. So Paul's sitting over here in Corinth. He wants to aid and be a blessing to the Romans. He's describing the gospel. He longs to reach them eventually, but he knows there's a job to do. Instead of continuing on toward Rome, he has to backtrack. He's going to go back across the known world, through all these places, and eventually end back up where he started. So his heart is going in one direction, but his physical task is bringing him in the total opposite way. And that's the place that Paul is. He's looking around. He says, I've done this three times. I'm about to complete this missionary journey with the offering for Jerusalem. I hope it goes well. And he begins to ask some questions. What does God have for me next? How do I know if this succeeded? This is a fascinating moment in Paul's life. What do you do when what you knew to do has just about been done? What do you say when you've said all that more or less needed to be said? How do you know when it's time to transition? This is a fascinating moment in Paul's life because it's part retirement speech, but not entirely as we're going to see. But it has some of this. It's a summary statement. He's looking back at the good work that he's done. But I think more than that, it is part justification. It is part explanation. It's a reflection on why he's done what he's done and did it matter. And I'm not going to project on Paul too much. Or maybe it is projection because here I am, a, an early 40-something person. This speech has some elements of what I might call a kind of midlife crisis. Or at least the kinds of existential questions that come up in a midlife crisis. I think it would be wrong to say that Paul was having a crisis, but he's asking the kind of questions that I know I'm tempted to ask and a lot of people I know are tempted to ask. They maybe go to bed at night thinking things like this. So what's next? And am I just going to keep doing this for 20 years? Has this been worth it? Is this what I was supposed to do? Am I fulfilling potential? Maybe you wake up in the morning and you think, man, I don't have the energy anymore that I used to have for when I did this exact same thing. What happened? Where am I going? Did it matter? And as 
Paul finishes this letter, he's looking back and he has a sense inside of himself, something's going to change. I've spent all this time, third missionary journey now, these are my people. I've poured myself out. He says that in another, in another place in scripture. He poured himself out as a drink offering, but now he looks around and he says, I think this is about to be done. And so he's going to reflect back and say, how do I measure the success of what I've done, what I've done? And how do I explain what motivates me and what I'm supposed to be doing? And so my goal and my idea here, what I believe that Paul gives us, and he tells us in Scripture to imitate me as I imitate Christ, something that maybe could be imitated by us, to say, what do we do in those kind of moments? When we look back and we take stock of remeasure, how do we know it was a success? How do we know when to transition? What are the kind of things that we should measure life by? Let me give you a few of the words, some of the things that he's going to use to measure his life. First, he's going to ground it in the mission of Jesus. So Paul's going to say, here's how I measure this. Here's how I want to explain what I've done. My life is grounded in the mission of Jesus. Then he's going to go on and he's going to say, here's the thing. Not only is it grounded in the mission of Jesus, but I believe that what I've done is validated by you, the life of the church, by my calling and my faithfulness in what is happening with you. So his success and his validation is in the thriving of the people around him. So first he says, I'm grounding my success in the mission of Jesus. Second, he's going to say, I'm validated here by faithfulness and thriving of the people around me. And then he's going to say, you know what? I also want to describe my motivations. He's going to go back to his motivations. If I was an MLM leader, I might say, this is your why. You know, you ever heard one of those kind of trainings? What's your why? <laughs> that kind of thing. At the heart of everyone's life, they do have to ask, or ask themselves and answer the question, why do I do what I'm doing? And what Paul's going to do is he's going to give the motivation for his ministry as the ongoing need of the lost to be found of the blind to see. He's motivated by those who have not heard. And this will be a measure of success. Are his motivations proper? Are you moved by the right motivations? That's a measure of success when you're trying to ask yourself big questions. And then finally, I think this is a sprinkling more than it is. In fact, we're going to see it a ton in Romans 16, a sprinkling more than it is any one thing. But I want to note that Paul seems to measure his ministry by what he's animated by, and he's animated by joy and relationships. The people around him are what move him. So there's a lot here. And I want to begin where Paul begins in reflecting on his ministry. Is he, anyone who's going to read this letter, how are they going to be able to make sense of what he's done? And the first thing that he says is this. He goes back in verse 8. I tell you that Christ, he grounds everything back to Jesus. How do you know what you're doing has been worthwhile. Well, Paul says, here's the thing. I'll know that I'm successful and that everything's been fine if I look at what Jesus has been doing and I do that. And what he wants to remind those who would be reading this, remember, he just got done saying, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, would you get along? Stop arguing about your music and stop arguing about festival days and stop arguing about the, the dinner menu. Just get along. And what he's says to them is, I want to remind you that my ministry to bring Gentiles into the fold of the gospel is the promise of the Bible from the beginning. 
You know, one thing that he might know is that if it's something new, it could be suspect. But he says, I'm grounded not only in tradition, but something much deeper than that. I'm grounded in the ministry of Christ, and I'm grounded in Scripture itself. And so what Paul does is he does something that should ground all of our lives. He looks at Jesus and what he's done and says, I want to do that. And he looks at Scripture and he says, guide me. And here's what he finds in Scripture. He quotes four different places. He's going to grab from 2 Samuel in verse 9. He's going to grab from Psalm 18 in verse 10. Psalm 117 in verse 11. And then he goes to Isaiah in verse 12. And this is what he wants to defend. He says, you know the stuff that I'm doing? This has always been God's plan. This isn't some newfangled ministry. Has anyone ever said newfangled in a serious way? That's such an interesting phrase. This isn't some brand new Johnny come up and kind of thing, just Johnny come lately kind of thing. This is not a brand new scenario. I am simply doing the ministry that God has always proclaimed. And for anyone who is tempted to believe that Christianity was an elite, sectarian, small, minor, narrow thing for only a group, a small set of people, he says, go back and look at your Bible again. You should realize that Jesus came and he proclaimed a gospel to the Pharisees and to the high priests and to those around. They rejected him. And so therefore the gospel spread to everyone. He says, look how often the Bible points to this. I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Psalm 18, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to the fact that all of Scripture anticipates a day when those who were far off, those who were lost, those who were blind will be brought in. And they will be a part of his people. Not second class, but his people. Rejoice, all you peoples, is what Scripture says. So one measure of success for Paul is simply this. Is what I've given my life to consistent with the eternal, unchangeable, authoritative promises of God as found in Scripture and demonstrated in the person of Jesus? And if what I'm doing, if my entire life is revolving around something antithetical to Christ and antithetical to the mission of God, then I should rethink it. But he has been faithful. And he is trying to convince them that I've been grounded. This is verse 8 to 13. He says, I've been grounded in the mission of Jesus. And so I'm going to double down. And I'm going to say to all you Gentile Christians and all those who have come from far off, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing. This is a measure of success. Anyone who's in Christ could fail at all things in a worldly sense, But if they have been faithful to and imitated Jesus and been consistent with the eternal plan of God is given to us in his word, then you can say, this is a win. This is a success. It's one of his measurements. Second, Paul measures his success not by his own aggrandizement, but by the success of others. I love how he says in verse 14, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers. What gives him joy and satisfaction is not what he's gathered for himself, but what he sees as the thriving of the people around him. This is a selfless mindset of life. It means that the greatest measurements for how you're giving yourself away are not what you've gathered to yourself. Paul doesn't say this. Paul doesn't say, hey, here's the thing. I know that I was a success because they built this plaque and this statue and had this fountain dedicated to me, and my name's on these seven buildings, although those might be good measures of success. 
in a worldly kind of sense, which may be blessed of God. The idea here is essentially this. Notice how Paul constantly rejoices in the people around him who are thriving. He says, oh, let me tell you about so-and-so. They're full of goodness. They've got knowledge when they didn't have knowledge before. They can instruct one another. I don't have to, to babysit the thing anymore. They are growing and thriving in Christ. And he is so pleased by what he sees as the fruit of his life. I also want you to note that thriving and peace and joy and all these things that he longs for, they are not inconsistent with saying things boldly. In verse 15, Paul says, look, look, on some points, I've had to remind you very boldly. It's what we saw last week. A unity built on a kind of fake, say nothing, meaningful kind of thing is not what Paul's after. He says, no, I'm driving it at a unity that comes straight through the bold things. And yet it's their unity, their joy, their goodness, their growth that makes him so delighted. Perhaps as you reflect on what you're involved in, you've noted times in your life when you've been a little bit too self-centered, a bit you preoccupied. I think what Paul invites us to here is to realize that a life that loses itself for the sake of the gospel does not measure success based on what can I gather for me, but more so on what can God do through me for the good of others. Are you content if all around you flail and suffer and become emaciated in life so that you can be propped up? Or do you see your thriving as those around you being able to succeed in a way that they could not succeed had God not used you for their good? When Paul rejoices, in fact, when he boasts, he says, I'm satisfied. I'm going to boast in this that God used me to bless you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 He's going to say in verse 2 something very similar when he thinks about Corinth. What does Paul rejoice in? What does he say? Here's my evidence of a successful life. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. This does not mean that the Christians around him were perfect, especially in writing to Corinth. He knows that. But what an amazing thing. This is the church in in Corinth with all of its problems. He says, you, you succeeding, you being in Christ, you're our letter of recommendation. Paul knows that what he's done has been worth it. The value, the joy of his life, because not only is it grounded in the ministry of Jesus, he says, I'm doing what Jesus did and what scripture tells me to do. But more than that, he sees people thriving in Christ all around him. And he says, I'm going to rejoice in that. An additional explanation or reflection that Paul has on the motivation of his ministry. And this is one I can't help but be motivated by. You know, one of the most interesting, ominous kind of things about Paul's writing here, remember when I gave you the geography lesson? And I said, oh, he longs to come from, come from Corinth to go give the offering. He says, please pray with me that I'm not hindered by the unbelievers there. He wants to just CIA sneak in there and Jason born the thing and give the gift and then get out because he said, I have so many plans. I want to get back through Rome and go to Spain. Well, those of you who know the rest of the story know that that does not happen at all. 
In fact, Paul's being hindered in coming to them continues. He goes back to Jerusalem and he is arrested very publicly. He is persecuted. He is treated poorly. He is forced to explain himself and his life and his ministry over and over and over again. He is eventually, because he's a Roman citizen, thrown on a prison boat. And he does get back to Rome, but not as a free man, but as a prisoner. So Paul has all these amazing plans for his life. He's transitioning out. He's got amazing plans. He gets thrown in a boat as a prisoner. And then if that's not enough, there's an amazing storm that comes up and he gets shipwrecked to the point of almost dying. And all the while, my guess is that Paul was tempted to ask questions like this. Does this mean I've failed? Does this mean that everything that he wanted to do because it was one stumbling, bumbly, fumbly after the next, that it's failed? These will be the kind of questions that Paul's going to have to get confronted with. Life has not been peachy so far, and it won't be peachy in the future. He doesn't know this, but he's writing some of the last words that he's going to write as a free man. So what we find written here The idea that Paul is aware of the danger that he's in. He says, look, I go there. I've been there before. They always want to arrest me. They try to kill me. I've been flogged a bunch of different times. I've been imprisoned. I have not been applauded in my life. He knows the danger. He realizes that he's been at this for a few decades. He says, there's no more ministry for me to do. And yet, what is astounding to me is that we do not find a man unmotivated. We do not find a man cynical but hopeful. Paul looks out at the landscape of his life and he says, God is going to do greater things in the future than anything that he's done so far and I can't wait to give my life away for this. And this motivation of knowing that there are image bearers of God out in Spain who do not know Christ moves Paul. He has been persecuted He is running for his life in many ways, going back into the lion's den of Jerusalem to give this offering. He knows the danger surrounding him, but he has not slowed down at all. He persists. He's pressing on. What a gift in the ministry of Paul's life. Something to imitate. It is the idea that there are those in Spain. As far as he knows, there's not a a vibrant church there. They are not calling on Jesus. And so he says, I like the idea of Senor Paul, right? I I want, I want the, anyway, (laughs) the Iglesia, I'm going to keep going on with Spanish jokes, but you get the point. He envisions something that has not happened yet, and he's hoping for it. And can I just pause for a moment? I don't want to put the word crisis on Paul. I don't think he's having this. In fact, what I'm being drawn to here is a spirit of a man who's not been ruined by the cynicism of the world. And here I am. Early 40-ish, I mean really, 30s, I mean really, if you think about it. Just barely, just, just turning this corner that for a lot of people, you ask these questions. And let me tell you, if you're not there yet, I don't know where you're at this morning. You may be young, going through school, you may be being trained in competence and knowledge, and you just think to yourself, I don't even know what I'm going to do in the world yet, and I want you to listen. And you may be here saying, I've been trained, I've been competent, i got my first job. Let me tell you, we're taking the world by storm. And I remember being there. I remember just thinking like, everything's going to work out. Everything's hopeful. Everything's great. You just do this, X, Y, Z. We got the whole thing figured out. I'm not going to say the word naive. You could have accused me of that. I want you to listen. 
And those of us who have worked a few decades, and we're looking back and we're saying, okay, we got a mountain of stuff here. We piled a lot of mornings after one another. We're trying to take stock of where we are and what's happening. Those of us who are turning a page. And then in this room, there are those who are more or less looking back and saying, I've put in six or seven good decades here. I've got the gray hairs to prove it. I've sinned in a million ways. I've been sinned against in a million ways. I see th- I've seen things go right and I've seen things go wrong. And I want to tell every single one of those groups that what Paul is giving to us here is of unspeakable importance. He is showing us how to live a life free of cynicism and hopelessness. There is a lie built into all of us, perhaps in the Western world more than most, but I don't know. I've only lived here. There is a lie that says essentially the goal of life is this. Work as quickly to accumulate as much as you can so that then you can just chill. Get to the lazy boy as fast as you can. Try to become unharmed. Invest yourself as little as possible so that it's just easy road the rest of the way. Begrudgingly punch the clock day after day. So that finally you just don't have to do this garbage anymore. And that message of the world sucks the life from a soul in such a profound way. That what I want to say with the Apostle Paul, especially to those who are continuing to walk, is not to give up hope. Paul has done through all this. If you said, who's done more for the church in the New Testament than Paul? The answer, no one. And yet... He is making plans for a work of God in a place that's never heard. He's saying, oh man, you wouldn't imagine what's going to happen if I can just get through Rome and get to Spain. He's still believing. He's still hoping. He's still praying. He's still striving. What a gift it is. And maybe I'll just say this to the slightly more mature, seasoned, what's the politically correct way to call you old? I want to say to you who are a little bit older, One of the absolutely most profound gifts you can give to the church is to grab someone, wherever they are, young people or just mature adults ready to to kill it or people in a midlife crisis to grab them by the shoulders and look at them and say, I want you to know I'm still in this with you and we're not giving up and Jesus is still good and there are still hills to take and the gospel matters and there are places in the world that will come alive to Christ. Let's keep going. We do not need cynical, battered, tired peanut gallery in the church. What's the Muppet thing? You know the peanut gallery? Do you know how easy it is? I feel it. I'm so old and I'm barely in my late 20s. I'm so old in my soul because of my own sin. I was thinking about, I, I'm about, I can start telling great old jokes. I came up with one this week. You tell me about it. When I was a kid, that's how I know God's powerful. He answers prayer. When I was a kid, I prayed that I'd be just like Michael Jordan and I have his hairdo. So what do you think of that one? Is that one okay? I'm old. I can say these things. I know the feeling in it. I know how hard it is. And I know that so many of you are saying, I'm just holding on. But you know what? I'm saddened and I'm grieved and I've been sinned against and I'm hurting. And what I'm saying to you is do not let The motivation of your life be sapped from you. The lost are out there in the world. They need to be saved. The gospel is powerful. We have the truth of God. There are those around you who need to be loved. There are people who need your wisdom. Do not let the life 
sucking, sapping cynicism of the world and the hurt of our hearts keep us from striving after the good things in Christ. It's the same Paul who's later going to write, likely from a Roman prison, he's going to say, here's what I do. I press on toward the call of the upward call of God, the prize that I'm going to get in Christ Jesus. I'm pressing on. What a gift, someone pressing on. So those of you being trained, just be careful, this happens. And those of you starting out naive and saying, well, other people fail, but surely not me. It may come. And those of us still turning over a new page and saying, what next? Keep going. And those of you who have spent seven decades looking back and have a ton of work, say, what might God have for me next? That's what Paul's reflecting on. He measures success by his ongoing motivation for the lost. What I believe that I see in Paul is that I should come to fear something. I should come to fear having a professionalized spiritual life with an easy, consistent, normal church in a place that I could skate my way through unmotivated, saying, well, Jesus should come back here sometime soon. Maybe I'll take a nap. Let's spend ourselves so long as we have breath. That's what I think Paul's saying. It's amazing. He's like, look, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. It's kind of a crazy mission. I might get sidetracked. They'll probably hurt me, maybe kill me. I'll get imprisoned. I don't know. Here's the point. I still have some life in me. I'm going to be poured out. That would be a good way to live. Now, finally, we don't have a lot of time for this this morning, but we got all of next week with Romans 16. The entirety of that chapter is just him rejoicing in the people that he knows, the relationships that he's built. And on the the heels of his measurement of success by being joyful and not cynical, he asks them specifically, pray for my joy. Why does he want to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea? So that he could come to them with joy, and I love this line, to be refreshed in your company. He longs for his friends. Friendship is hard, especially as you get older and more busy with children. It's not easy to make new friends. Relationships take time. But Paul says, I know what the good things are in life. The good things are sitting elbow to elbow and face to face and knee to knee with brothers and sisters in Christ and being refreshed and encouraged. His joy from the Holy Spirit and his joy in the people around him mark his ministry. We're going to see a ton more about that next week. Here's the picture that Paul's giving us. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's do the mission of Jesus according to the word of God that is eternal and forever. Let's faithfully execute our calling and then look for the fruit of good in other people, not ourselves. Others aggrandizement, not self-aggrandizement. Then finally, as we age and as we fight the battles and as we are embattled and sin and are sinned against, let's let the spirit of Jesus, the fruit of his spirit, work in us not cynicism, but joy. Motivation and joy to keep striving. If we could be a church like that, I will happily spend myself with you.